Hello, hello, welcome, or shall I say, welcome back to Jump the STEM podcast for another season with talented, inspirational, and accomplished young scientists from different parts of the world who are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. I started this podcast in 2019 to infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. You can always discover more on www.jobdescent.com. And if you like what you hear or now see on YouTube, feel free to show your love and support. And now let's get right into the episode and discover who is going to be dropping the stem today. Hello, hello, welcome to the Job the Stem podcast. It's an absolute joy to start off season two with a bright and inspirational young scientist and innovator, Fion Ferreira, who made a device that removes microplastic particles from water in a fast, efficient, non-harmful, and clean way. Fion is the grand prize global winner of the Google Science Fair 2019, second place winner in chemistry at ISAF, and his story has been featured in Forbes, Business Insider, Bloomberg, and CNN, to mention a few. He's also a global keynote speaker, has spoken at the World Economic Forum 2020 or the Global Plastic Health Summit, served as a judge at Green Tech Festival, and was awarded a Strongwell Leadership Award. Fion also loves to communicate and get people excited about the wonders of science. And I'm pumped to let him do just that today on the pod and get to know him beyond the project board as well. As you might have guessed, we are sharing the pod episodes with the visuals on YouTube too. And with no further ado, hello Fion, welcome on board. Hello, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm so excited to to speak with you, hopefully share some of my ideas, my motivations, and yeah, hopefully somehow connect to your listeners um, and, and yeah, connect, hopefully inspire, create, and give you guys an idea of what I love doing. I'm positive you will certainly achieve that today on the pod. And we also like to dig a little bit deeper and go back to the beginnings of how it all started, your story. So if we dig back to the beginnings, what spurred you to create, invent, and experiment? Well, I'm from Ireland. And some people might know that in Ireland it rains quite often. Um, So when it's raining, I liked being inside, um, inventing things, playing with my Legos, trying little things out, wiring things, soldering as a child. And when it wasn't raining, you know, those two days in the year in Ireland when it doesn't rain, that's when I love exploring and being out in the wilderness, seeing yeah, what the world is and how it can be made better and just things to do with it. So that's why for me, a real optimal thing is to mix exploring with science. And then also I like telling people about it. So that's why I like to also have the field of storytelling in there as well. So I guess I got into this whole field of invention because I could see so many problems with the environment while exploring. I could, for instance, see more and more plastic appearing on the shorelines where I was exploring by myself with my kayak almost all the time through my youth. So that's why I decided to try and create technologies that I could use to hopefully um, make this a little better and solve some of these problems, or at least not make them worse. And even if they fail, hey, I still have a cool story to tell, which is, I guess, a way to give people um, more awareness about the plastic problem in general. Amazing. And you've also had a lovely companion to share your adventures with. Could you expand on that? Yeah, sure. So um, I like kayaking with my companion, India, my dog. She's black um, and we always love kayaking together. I think she's like a super kayak dog. Uh, I don't know if this is a normal thing, but she just loves it. Um, we also love exploring mountains and forests and wherever else. Or she just loves sitting on the rug in the lab when I'm doing experiments as well. Um, but yeah, definitely the best lab technician there is. <laughs> How adorable. And you also mentioned that you certainly do care about the environment. It's a passion of yours but you're also focusing on a very specific topic. How did you choose that? Or we also know that microplastics are a hot topic for a reason. So why did the microplastics become the focus of your research? Well, I didn't just go and say, hey, I want to study microplastic, right? I more kind of 
broadened into the field as I realized this is a problem. So for me, it all started with large plastic. I could see more and more large bits of plastic washing up on the coastline where I lived all the time, like literally just more and more and more. Um, these would be ropes and different things. And then uh, if I would take some of those home to investigate them after my exploration trips, I would see that they're breaking down into small bits, particularly there where they've been exposed to the sun or being crashing against rocks. Remember, we get really big waves on the, the coast of Ireland. So that's why it's pretty rough sometimes. And that's when I started seeing that actually the problem with these big plastic are not big plastics in the sea themselves, but rather that they break down into smaller plastics that things can eat. Because big plastic, okay, an organism or a fish might be able to hurt itself on it, but it won't be as drastically dangerous to the health of us and fish unless it gets really small, so small that we can start ingesting it. So as plastic gets smaller and smaller and smaller, they get more and more difficult to clean up. Um, in fact, microplastics, you've probably drunk about five grams of microplastics in the last week in your water. Uh, that's about one credit card's worth of plastic. Um, so yeah, quite a bit. Well, all of that plastic um, is almost impossible to filter out of water unless you use really energy intensive ways. And for me, that just horrified me. And that's why I decided to, to at least try and learn more about the problem. So I guess the first thing I did uh, was try to see, well, is there plastic here? And how can I find it? How can I detect it? Well, at first, I thought it would be easy. I could just, you know, look at the water and see. Of course, trying to find something that's about the tenth of the width of the human hair in size actually turns out to be a little challenging. First of all, these plastics are tiny. Second of all, they're sometimes translucent. Uh, third of all, they might look very similar to other things in the water. So it's actually really difficult to detect them. So the first big challenge was just basically adapting things such that I could make a device um, to try and measure these microplastics in water. So I built a device called a spectrometer. And basically that uses um, a light source and shines light through a sample and plastics when light shines on them, they get really excited. They start jiggling around. That absorbs light. And that means that, um, therefore, the light gets changed, that gets released. And like that, I can see that there's plastic in water. And that is when I realized, oh, there's a huge plastic problem here that somebody has to solve because there's just so much in all our water. Wow, their mood really does lighten up when you're observing it in the spectrometer. But... We know that spectrometers can cost a fortune, especially if we think about lab use. So how did you go about making your own? And I also love this story because I think that garage researches, so meaning that you take the matters into your own hands, is really important when perhaps you don't have the resources around yourself in the beginning phases. What was it like, that beginning stage for you? Well, 100%, first of all, garage researchers, we need more of them and we need more young garage researchers. And that's why actually one of my fairly recent startups works on this. So uh, hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But yes, um, spectrometers are expensive. The cheapest ones are $50,000, uh, but we can get way more expensive ones. But um, I thought, well, what in essence is this big piece of kit that's in a lab? Um, I lived in remote Ireland, when I mean remote, like five kilometers to the nearest house from my house and like five hours drive to the nearest spectrometer um, and just in the middle of nowhere. So that's why I thought, well, I could gather together my materials. What did I have? I had some light bulbs. That's my light source in a spectrometer. I had um, a webcam that could be my detector. Um, I had a computer so I could code software to do things. And I had some Lego blocks to build a housing. So basically uh, bringing these bits and pieces together, um, I decided to, to just um, yeah, build a spectrometer at home. It wasn't an easy process though. And I kind of constantly was at the beginning getting issues. One of which was like, I, I built in the light, got a short circuit, like the whole village had no power for like a day. Or I, I also did one where I used like a halogen light bulb and the light bulb got really hot and like melted all the Lego bricks of the wall and the entire spectrometer, like a month's work, just completely melted into a puddle. And there were all these kind of fun little uh, mishaps along the way, which 
for me, is what makes me enjoy the area of invention and science so much. The unexpected parts of the story. They really do add up and I guess everybody in your local sphere knew that you were doing research so you couldn't hide it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I didn't tell anybody that that was the reason why the power went out, but I'm, I'm sure people okay. get it. <laughs> All right, but it does really make a good story and um, I like how you pursued your uh, motivation, the need to research it in an unflinching way. and. I've seen your video on YouTube and it's really cool to see how you can extract plastic from that contaminated water. How did the idea of using magnets come and how did you go about the extraction methods measuring the efficacy of your invention? Well, um, I already had this spectrometer device, so that actually allowed me then to start looking at plastics and water more and looking at how let's say a common kitchen sieve would have an effect which doesn't have an effect or how different things could have an effect on it so i thought well the worst thing that could happen is that i try something and it doesn't work which is still fun um, and the best thing is that i could actually make an idea that might possibly be effective but from my uh, school chemistry class i remember reading about microplastics being made from oil and at the time um, that oil is non-polar and plastics are non-polar and water is polar so that's why these two things would stick together if we brought them into a close vicinity so that's why I decided well what about if I mix a bit of oil into water and uh, with plastics in it and see what the effect is now the water did get cleaner but that's how we don't want to create oil spills everywhere that that's no good so what if we could try and attract the oil or control the oil somehow? And that's where I came to the idea of what if we use magnetic oil or a ferrofluid, a magnetic medium added to oil. And that's where the birth of my idea came about. Um, I then basically continued working and looking at different types of oil about so magnetic powder and what type of magnets I could use to just make this process more effective. And then to test how effective it was, I was using my spectrometer and it looked really great. I was getting really high extraction rates, like 87%. So being me and being like super doubtful about my pile of Lego bricks and light bulbs and stuff, I thought this can't be true. I have to like build something else just to cross check. So that's why I also built a microscope um, and coded a software that could like find uh, microplastic particles in a microscope image. And then I took microscope images of my samples as well and actually got the same extraction rate. Um, then I still didn't believe myself. So that's when I started um, like repeating the tests. So I repeated the tests like four and a half thousand times. And after that, when the results were still the same, I kind of thought, well, I must be onto something here. It can't just be chance. Yeah, after like 4,000 times, you can be quite sure. And I also like the fact how you came from one idea to another. So it was through those aha moments and going forward. Yeah. And actually for me, I was always just playing with science. So I was always just like, oh, let's build a spectrometer. Let's play with ferrofluids. And I, these were all things I had dabbled in over the years. And for me, this project really tied them all together, which was so strange and so exciting. And literally also on the other end, another thing I was dabbling in was like, working on my computer and doing data analysis and, and coding softwares. And this all came into it as well. So it was just kind of, it combined all the things I loved. Yes, and did you know how to code before or was it a skill that you had to learn during the experimentation process? Well, obviously it depends what language. Um, so the experimentation process, it was different because I had some hardware, um, which was in C and C++, which I'm quite good at. And I did all my data analysis in Mathematica, um, which is a yeah analysis um, mathematical modeling software code, which I like a lot. But I had never worked in like Java and things like that, um, and like writing softwares. Um, so that was a new area for me to explore. Um, but obviously, I had a bit of a basis in other languages, so some things carried over, and the logic itself carried over. Yes, yes, that's great to hear. It's like a similarity between languages when they are from the same root. So if you learn Spanish and then Italian, you kind of get the logic and can implement those 
strategies or those structures into another. So I'm half German, half Portuguese, and I can't speak any Italian, but I can read Italian, even though, yeah, I can know I can't speak it. And that's from the Portuguese. So same thing with different coding languages, I think. Yes, and perhaps your enthusiasm for languages, as I can tell, translates into computing languages. Are there any correlations? Not sure. Um, I find computing languages a lot easier to learn than actual like spoken languages. That's because somehow uh, you know sarcasm doesn't exist in coding, and uh, and there's so much you know it's so much simpler. So I I'm much rather learn a computing language than a actual one, but I speak um, German, Portuguese, uh, English, Irish, and a bit of Dutch. Okay, okay, the big five, not the personality test, but in terms of languages, so that's really cool to hear. And if you like computing languages, they are already international, so you might have a little bit an easier thing going for you. We've talked about the efficiency of your extraction method, but you actually took this project to the Google Science Fair where you won first prize. When you presented the project and where you are right now, what are some of the newer things going on in your project? How did you go about you know, specifying the method or clarifying how you go about extracting microplastic from water? Well, um, yeah, first of all, good question. Um, I first exhibited at the Google Science Fair in 2019. And um, I thought when I applied online, it, it said like, you know, you can win a T-shirt and you can win a, a laptop. And I thought, oh, great, I'm going to apply. Um, so I did. And then promptly I won a T-shirt. And I told my parents, look, I won a T-shirt. And then next I got an email saying, you're a global finalist. You're coming to California in a month. So I told my parents, um, they were like, what? And then um, I went there and I competed and I won. But more importantly, I realized that I wasn't just a weirdo who liked to experiment, but I was actually part of a global community of loads of people who love to do this too. And that was like the best thing of all about the fair. So I showed my idea and I had so much, um, I guess, positive press. So immediately that gave me a standpoint where people would just listen to me. I could like I, people just believe me. I didn't have to like prove myself because I was young anymore because people just um, understood that recognition and understood that I must have been well-founded. And like that, I was able to, yeah, not have to go through prejudices against young people and young inventors, which I think are still a problem. So at that time, I was still at a stage where I'd done these tests in my home lab, in my garden shed and nothing much more. So then for me, first of all, I had to navigate like the hundreds of, of press inquiries and people wanting me to speak at different events. And once I navigated that, I then realized that I um, wanted to commercialize this and try and bring this into a product or a method on a bigger scale. So I made a business um, in the US and then I promptly started to work with a lab at Stress Engineering Services who have professional spectrometers and lots of nice equipment to be able to test this on a big scale. So they've been doing tests basically for a year um, on lots of different types of plastic, different types of water, different amounts, and just optimizing this method, but also giving us validated lab scale experiments on validated equipment, which will really stand up to, to whatever people throw at us. And then over the past couple of months, I have been filing a patent on this method um, to protect myself, but not only to disallow people from using it, but also to choose who I can allow this method to be used, um, which gives me a lot more control over how it can be used. Um, I've also been working on trying to make this continuous flow because originally it was like, I do it all in a beaker, but on a big scale, when we've got a lot of water to process, we wanted to flow in and flow out clean. So trying to design a device to do that has been a major focus of my work um, to date. And actually looking down the line, hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have a really nice working prototype, which I can show people. And then later next year, we'll have a huge prototype for like a whole treatment plant, let's say, uh, a water treatment plant or something like that, um, which is also in development at the moment. 
that's amazing and so exciting. I'm really happy for you and congratulations on the patent and where you are at now. It's so great that you've been accepted into a very motivational environment and sphere where they do not look upon you but they uplift you in both practical and emotional ways which I think are both needed for the young people who as you said believe in them and it's also a great tip that you share that you not necessarily wanted to restrict people but to be the judge of who is going to use your invention and setting up those boundary lines whether in mm -hmm. our friendships, relationships, or in business, are paramount. So kudos for that as yeah. well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, in terms of support, financial and strategic support is also essential in taking invention to the next level. So I've seen a Robert Downey Jr. post on LinkedIn. Tell me about it. <laughs> Yes, so um, I guess a large amount of our support financially for this engineering work and this patenting work has actually come from Robert Downey Jr.'s foundation called the Footprint Coalition. And they have been really generous in supporting my like super early stage project um, financially, but also strategically. And they've been providing a lot of introductions to different companies, and that's really been wonderful. Um, we've also received support from other um, different grantees and different foundations. That said, actually, it's one of the major challenges at the moment is still trying to find people who are willing to fund this kind of crazy young guy from Ireland who's never, you know, brought a new invention to commercialization before. And I think, you know, kudos to people who are supporting me because um, I can understand why it's a bit risky. Um, but I really, really enjoy um, to have this support. I've also built together an advisory board of plastic experts um, from around the world, um, people who are involved with wastewater treatment, things like that. Somebody you definitely need to speak to for this podcast at some point is actually Anna-Marika Infanils uh, from um, The Great Bubble Barrier. Um, and she actually is on our advisory board. She's amazing. And her startup looks at big plastic, so not microplastic, but they've made a huge bubble barrier uh, to, to stop that from entering the sea. I just jotted down her name. So thank you for the tip. I'm going to keep that in mind. And also, those are amazing news that you've just shared. And it really is a, a different phase of your business because when you do research, you are in a more theoretical place, even if you're doing experiments, but when you're out in the real practical and material world, you have to gain new skills. And it's great to see your project grow in that sphere as well. You mentioned Google Science Fair, which was definitely a highlight moment of your scientific journey. You mentioning that talking and conversing with people who are just as excited about science as you are has been a highlight. So could you mention other highlight-worthy moments? I know you participated at ISAP, Google Science Fair, and BTM Scientist, which is also a huge thing. I've heard about it from Hungary, that it's really a prime Ireland competition. <laughs> yeah, so the BT Young Scientist is the, the whole of Ireland Young Scientist competition, and that's one that I actually entered several times. So I think that's, I really have to be very thankful to them because that's where I really got into science competitions and competing and showing my technology. So actually at 12, I submitted my first project. And then at, um, then two years later, I did my next. And then one year later, the microplastic project. Um, I kind of had a, a red uh, ribbon going through all of them. And that was that I was always looking at some cool science process chemistry typically, and then I would build some invention around it to actually carry it out in a clever way. Um, so one of them was actually a machine that could measure antioxidants in fruit just by popping in a sample of fruit. Um, but I really found that that exhibition was really a highlight for me the first time I went, just seeing how many people were interested in STEM and how many kind of crazy young inventors there were in Ireland. Um, but also how much was possible and how many different types of projects you could conduct and how many amazing tools we have, particularly at this time, to actually be able to conduct projects like this. Um, I then also had the opportunity to, to I guess, work with um, other people in my school and also just, just 
work on I would say the the experimentation side with other projects too. So that was wonderful. And then actually alongside all of this, a highlight I think in my kind of scientific world and space, and what really helped me for all of this was a planetarium. So I was lucky to be in a village in Ireland which had its own planetarium called Skull Planetarium. Uh, when I was there, it was like completely falling apart and yeah, there wasn't much happening in it. And I thought, well, why can't we just renovate this and start giving planetarium shows? So it started really small. Um, I was just giving shows, showing people the star signs. And then like um, after a maybe two, three months of giving shows, like three times a week, it became like a major tourist attraction. So it started being like, you know, crowd control and like booking tickets online and the whole lot, like quite complex. Um, but that was really, really nice. So I got to learn how to speak in front of a crowd and communicate scientific ideas concisely, but effectively and engagingly. And I think that that really helped me in later science fairs to, um, I guess, just for me to reach out and also just connect with the judges and the general public who are listening to me. But for me, it was just such a wonderful feeling every time I got to go into one of those star shows and see all these people who had paid to come and listen to me talk about the stars for 30 years. <laughs> That's amazing. You did really shoot for the stars and shook things up and made it a local tourist attraction. Um, what were <laughs> some of the tips or what would be some of your tips or some experiences where you had to relearn how to communicate? Were there any barriers that you had to overcome in terms of, you know, speaking your mind and sharing your ideas when you were on other platforms, on the planetarium or in, in the judging sphere? Um, I think there's a very different thing between planetarium and judging sphere because, first of all, the planetarium, the audience is different. It's going to be people who... Um, have probably never heard about what a nebula is or or things in the sly. So you need to really tone things down in certain ways. Um, but I think that the, the skill there carries through everything. And that skill is actually being able to try and formulate your ideas in such a way that you can bring it out in a narrative, in one story. And I think storytelling is so important. Um, I believe, and for me, that there's no real difference. It's just what I'm physically saying, but I think the way it's said is almost the same. And I think also that if you can communicate, you know, a topic in a planetarium to a load of people of all different ages who've never heard about the stars and try and get them engaged for an hour, um, you'll typically find it way easier to talk to an expert who also loves science about your science project. So I'd recommend anybody that if you do a science project and if you want to practice um, pitching it or telling um, educated people about it, first, practice giving um, people an explanation who don't have a clue about what you've done and who, are, who don't have a scientific background. Because if you can make it engaging and exciting and interesting for them, then you can put in some more details, but remember to keep it engaging, exciting, interesting, and above all, show your enthusiasm and motivation um, to perhaps judges or experts. I think what you just shared speaks volumes also about how you communicate science. You can tell that you're enthusiastic about it. And just as you said, not just judging the content, but the way you say it. So delivery is key here. And the quote from Albert Einstein saying that if you cannot explain it to a child, you don't understand it yourself is very applicable in this scenario because explaining it in a toned down way does not make you look dumb. You make makes you look genius because you understand the fundamentals of that specific concept. I completely agree. And actually, that's one of the quotes I kind of live by and work by. Another one of the quotes is uh, from Thomas Edison, and it says, to invent, you need a good imagination and a pile of junk, uh, which I think is also so true. Yes, yes, dropping the stem right here. That's great. We've talked about a little bit of sustainability, but I know you've spoken about the topic in numerous platforms, and I'm interested in how do you envision the future of sustainability in the next few years or decades? Well, I think it really depends on what initiative we see from both policymakers, but also youth. 
But I'm really optimistic. And that's because we all of a sudden have a young generation of people who've heard about sustainability issues their entire lives. And a young generation who is incredibly motivated and powerful. Youth have never had so much power. And I think that, you know, I've made a small invention. Um, I have managed to get so much recognition for it. And I've managed to actually achieve quite a lot just by experimenting and playing myself. So if I've achieved all these little things through almost playing with my hobby, imagine what all the different uh, motivated youths will achieve when they start working on these problems. But I think what we need to do is get more people into and realize the issue of sustainability that's affecting us all. Um, I think for that, there's a key that needs to be addressed, and that is storytelling. I think policymakers and governments need to place more value on um, telling stories such that more people will hear about the issues and the first-hand experiences um, of climactic disasters or impacts. I think for me, the reason why I chose to go into sustainability was because I could actually see the issue of sustainability firsthand. I could see um, plastic washing up on my coast and having issues and, and uh, harming the environment. So I think everybody, sadly to say, has to see that at some point to become truly enthusiastic about being sustainable. I think that also um, sustainability is integrally linked to so many different fields. And like that, nobody can shift the blame onto anybody else. We all need to almost blame ourselves or at least do what we can ourselves. But I think in the next um, maybe 20 to 30 years, we're going to see a big shift towards sustainable movements, but ideally also um, that we place more value on the ideas of young people, young inventors, activists, and scientists. Because I think they, first of all, are often passionate about the world that they're going to live in but also they often have very good, powerful and innovative ideas. Absolutely. And also the concept of storytelling, uh, what you just shared is also important because telling a story empathizes uh, the audience with the concept being shared. It creates a connection that could not be other, where, other ways fostered. And it puts them in a mentor, a psychological place where they can feel the message being transmitted and it's not just pure and very raw data being thrown at them. So I think that's a really good starting point of making people aware and then inspiring them to take action afterwards. 100%. And scientific accuracy at times does not equal mainstream news. Are there some common misconceptions you would like to debunk? That's really good. So um, I'm glad you brought this up. So I've actually been struggling with this because I always get like one newspaper article saying something and then the next newspaper article recycles that newspaper article. And then it just turns into this kind of um, daisy chain or this kind of domino chain of death, right? Where the first person had this minor inaccuracy and it just grows and grows and grows until the final newspaper article turns into something that completely doesn't reflect reality. So that's why I think that newspapers are partly to blame, but a lot of people think the cutting edge, where we're actually doing research and where we need to solve problems, is really advanced and really inaccessible, which it often isn't. Scient uh, uh, scientists are often working on problems that are actually relatively simple still in the world and anybody could get engaged with. Um, I've had numerous articles, I'm not going to name any here, where I think um, people are saying, you know, this guy is attracting plastics from water using magnets, which I personally think is quite inaccurate because it's saying that the, you know, the, the plastic is attracted by a magnet, which is not true. I've got this intermediate ferrofluid liquid in there. Um, I've also heard people say that, you know, I'm going to clean the world's oceans. And I think that that places, first of all, a lot of pressure on me, but also um, I'm really focusing on water entering the oceans. So, stopping plastic entering the ocean first because we don't have a chance on cleaning the ocean before we stop plastic getting into it in the first place. Um, and of course, that would be something that I would look into after stopping all of that. But I just find there's a lot of inaccuracy there. So I think if anybody makes a discovery or makes something, just be very mindful of how you pitch things, particularly to conventional media, um, because anything you say can be used for you or against you or in a different context. 
Um, I've also had some very, very interesting incidents where um, I guess one inaccurate article was then reused by another newspaper who made it more inaccurate. And then, you know, it comes to a stage where it's like completely different um, and, and sometimes new quotes pop up, which I never said. So actually something that I really work on and what I'd recommend to people is actually setting up a Google alert for your name. So like that you get an email the minute your name gets mentioned on Google. And if there's something inaccurate about you, you can really quickly get in there and try and edit things. But it's definitely something I've struggled with. What a great tip. And it really is true that sometimes lies can be twisted truth to some extent or another, which can posture itself in such environments, especially in the media, when it enters this vicious cycle. And I guess if you were to be featured in a neo-psychological article, they would said Iris scientist is using the law of attraction to clean water, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then probably it's not even going to be to clean water anymore. Then it's going to be like to put, um, uh, like I think one of the articles that I've seen, which I thought was particularly far-fetched, was um, Irish science. Uh, Irish scientist um, cures Alzheimer's with magnets. And it basically came from that they, from some other article, they said, you know, I'm using magnets to remove microplastics from water. And then they must have realized that, well, microplastics have been linked to Alzheimer's. So they said, well, why can't we just say that he's, you know, using magnets to cure Alzheimer's, which I don't think is accurate. And I think that's an inaccuracy. Um, but but um, yeah, there's some really, really bad things that can happen. Um, and then once it's out there, it's really, really difficult to take down or get rid of um, so definitely something one has to be aware of. But what something a question marketing. Actually, yeah. Um, something actually which I would like to highlight is just that, as I've said earlier, the cutting edge is really close. So if you feel like you're passionate about the water problem or about electricity or anything, read a couple of actual scientific articles, go onto Google Scholar, find something, read it there, because that is peer reviewed. That has been reviewed by other scientists. Typically, it's a little harder to read, might take a little longer, but typically that's fact rather than glorified facts or maybe, uh, yeah, recycled facts. And um, that often those things are easier for me to understand. And also they give me a good idea about where I can be active, where I can make an impact. Yes, absolutely. It really is important to check your resources and also it's a bit far from it, but it might tie into the idea which you've shared previously in other forums that we might be talking about microplastics in water, in our food, in our bottled water even, like I read 93% of bottled waters contain some microplastics, but you speak about going back to the source. So that would be the most efficient way of solving the crisis, not just addressing the surface problems. Totally. So we need to go back to the source. So, um, for instance, the source of microplastic in the sea is rivers and wastewater. So I think we should stop plastics there. But ultimately, the only solution is that we stop making plastic. We stop making plastic that cannot break apart naturally into something that's not harmful. Um, because, you know, I can, I can be working all my life on removing these plastics from water. But if we stop them getting into water in the first place, then... Well, I'll um, actually never be out of a job because there will still be loads of plastic to clean up, but um, at least uh, we'll have a better positive impact. But at the moment, I just can't see that on the horizon. But that is my utter wish, is to see a future where we don't have um, so much harmful plastic. I think we can engineer and through cool chemistry ideas, create um, plastics that are uh, ones that are either easy to collect, recycle, or if they do get into the environment as microplastic, they don't cause harm and break down back into their biological components um, such that they just don't harm the environment. And that's my dream. Yes, and it really is an absolutely great dream because it impacts us all, the living, all types of organisms from plants through animals to humans who can accumulate microplastics. And it's great that you are in the fight of breaking this cycle. Mm, on a practical note, we sometimes see biodegradable plastic on, on products and 
this green plastic, is it helping the environment or is it just a marketing thing? Good question. Um, so it really depends on the type of biodegradable plastic or where the plastic came from. So first of all, I'm going to talk about bioplastic. Bioplastic is not the same as biodegradable plastic. Bioplastic is plastic that has come from a biological source, which means it might have been, you might have used, instead of crude oil, they might have used corn or um, potatoes or something like that to make the plastic. But the plastic itself is often identical to the plastic made from crude oil in its molecular form. So it means that once you throw it away, it is treated the same, it is the same product as one that, that was got from oil. Then biodegradables, you've got so many different types. One type of biodegradable is an oxo-biodegradable, which have actually been included in the single-use plastics ban. That's because these oxo-biodegradables biodegrade, they break into tiny pieces called microplastics, which then uh, are still harmful, but you can't see it anymore. You also have compostable um, biodegradable plastics, and those are ones that can break down in an industrial compost bin. So if they're over 80 degrees for three months or something, then it'll fall apart. But for me, I know that if I throw that into the trash bin, um, the trash collector will not know that this is a biodegradable plastic and therefore will just throw it into the, the stream for plastic that they don't know what to do with and it'll be incinerated. So we need to try and make a, a stream, a waste stream for these plastics as well. I think home compostable plastics are a good way to go because these are plastics that have been shown to compost well in your own compost bin at like 10 degrees Celsius um, just to fall apart. And if we can build more and use more of those and just compost them in our homes, that would be great. And that's a, a good way to go. But at the moment, there's a lot of greenwashing and money being made from, I think, misinforming the end consumer about how sustainable products really are. It's helpful that you've made this distinction and help clarify some ideas because it's easy to get lost in all of these new coming terms. And I guess this is what receiving information from a trusted source looks like on plastics. Well, actually, um, I would like to highlight that the plastic field is so broad. There are so many different types of plastics that even at conferences of polymer scientists, there is so many sheets like just defining what everything is, because at the moment, there's still no real regulation of what you can kind of call a bioplastic or not. So I think the ultimate thing, if you really want to be sure, is to go back down to basics, look at the chemistry of the plastic, see what it actually is, how it's made, and look at the type, and like that you can really figure out. Typically PLA, plastic polylactic acid, is quite good because it can break down in a, a hot industrial composter as well. Um, and those are often used for 3D printing. So that's a plastic that I personally think we should use more and, and should, yeah, in general, look at more. I see. And I guess you do a lot of looking at molecules at the University of Groningen studying chemistry. Uh, we definitely study molecules, uh, maybe not looking at individual molecules, but we look at lots of groups of molecules um, when we're doing experiments. For me, chemistry is a, a field which I love because it's um, basically a tool set of things that I can use to bring more inventions and ideas and research to life and just do what I love doing, and that's inventing and playing with science. So I really love studying there and playing with science there. Um, and that's where I'm currently actually am. Um, so I'm just going to be starting my minor next week. Um, and I'm in my final year of my bachelor project or of my bachelor, sorry. And I'll be starting my bachelor project. Um, but I really cannot stress enough how wonderful it is to study this, not because of prospects afterwards, but really because it just finally, I understand so much of how things work. Mm. That's the way to go. And it really is important that you study something that you are truly and utterly passionate about because otherwise it would be a burden. And when someone says, I need to do such and such versus I get to do something, there is a huge distinction. And you've also said that young people are crucial players in this playing field of making an impact in whatever field we're talking about. And Gen Z gets all kinds of hashtags and names. Um, what makes us Zoomers or Gen Z different in your opinion? <laughs> well, I think that um, what makes us different and in general young people different is that 
um, they perhaps haven't been living so long that they have been trained into this old fashioned train of thought. And rather they might see new connections between areas that previously people didn't think of connecting or putting together in that order. Um, think of a young child where it's particularly pronounced. You never just take for granted what somebody says, but rather you try and experiment and, and see for yourself if the building block will stick to the side of the house or not. And I think that that is something that as uh, the older we get and um, the more we lose because we just take for granted what we hear. And we can't. We need to experiment and try out our own ideas. I think that also through Gen Z Zers, because they are, I guess, living in this problem for so long and that perhaps they have heard about this their whole lives and can firsthand see the effects of it, they feel strongly about it. Um, but I think that we, when I talk about youth um, and when I talk about youth in science, I'm not just talking about Gen Zers or people who are physically young, but also people who are thinking in a young fashion. Because I think that anybody can be youthful in their scientific ideas in the way that they think and the, the way that they do science. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. So even if you're 90 years old, you can still be a youthful scientist. Yes, I like how you specify that because young people can also apply to that group you mentioned. And it's important not to restrain them chronologically, but inspire them in spirit and um, I think it really is true that genius is someone who carries the spirit of this childlike mentality and openness. And I see that you also carry that within yourself. Oh. Is it something innate or is it something you, you've learned during research? I think this childlike aspect just to play with science has some, something that I've always had and always played with and always developed. Um, for me, I always asked for stuff that I could and also use my savings for things where I could experiment more and play more and try stuff out. And typically, um, yeah, for Christmas, I would always ask for things that I wouldn't really know yet how to use, but wanted to learn how to use. So for my fourth birth, uh, for my fourth Christmas party, when I was four years old, I asked for like a soldering iron and um, electronics uh, components, which I then used to wire up my train set at the time. And all of these different things were just, yeah, nice things to play with and experiment with. But also, I was basically forcing myself to learn a new skill. And for me, learning new skills is, is really, really fascinating. At the moment, I'm also very much fascinated by the science of the forest and how things work there. So that's actually something I'm currently engaged with and just learning about just for the sake of it, just like I did when I was a child and I'm still doing. That's amazing to hear. And I think that um, having that spirit is so crucial because sometimes people who are, who have maximalistic tendencies are trying to strive for perfection because they're afraid of failure. And it's not that they want to get things done 100%, but they are afraid what happens if I don't do them in that perfectionist matter. And it really is crucial that you can play with things and not be afraid of failure because that's also another stepping stone for growth and for discovering new ideas, just like you are doing now with forestry, I guess. <laughs> well, it's not even like I'm doing very much. It's just an area that I'm dabbling in and playing with. And I'm still playing with so many different other areas, but it's just one of the like latest things that I know nothing about. And I'm just enjoying like, getting into by starting from the very basis of the chemistry that's going on on the forest floor. But um, for me, I um, really think that failure is something we have to embrace. I just don't think of it as failure. Um, I think that every single good invention goes through so many failures or so many things that don't work. And that's just something you cannot avoid. So I think that there is no think in saying, I'm going to wait for this to go right. Instead, do it when it doesn't work and sometime it will be right. Um, it's like, I think uh, Thomas Edison, again, um, went through about 10,000 models of a light bulb before he actually found one that actually worked. I can't remember the specific quote, um, but that, at least for me, was also very inspirational. Um, I think that's why I've been working really hard on a startup this whole year with National Geographic Society. And that startup is called Glick. Glick is Irish for wise. And basically there I'm trying to build a resource place 
for young scientists, young inventors, young activists to find the hands-on resources to do that. Because for me, okay, I wanted to be in science, but I didn't know what resources were available to me. If I knew the technologies, the different methods that were already out there and easy for me to do in my backyard more, I could have done so much more at that young age. And that's why I want to share that. And that's why I work on this new startup, Glick. So it's theglick.com. Um, it will be formally launching um, later in October, but it's already live. People can already sign up, particularly people listening to this podcast. And ideally, we're just trying to yeah, give people the tools necessary to invent and do science. That's amazing to hear that you are providing a platform where people from literally anywhere in the world can connect with people who are going to help them in their journey because having that support group is going to be immense in someone's journey and growth. That spirit of being um, teachable as well, but also expanding their own horizons. So I think that the mission of Glick is very necessary because those are going to be the people changing the world of the upcoming years and decades and hopefully contributing to a better environment and to better living conditions as well. Exactly. And also we can't say that these people are going to be, well, they are going to be the ones making a contribution and solving those problems, but why wait until they're old to do that? Why not give them the resources now to start practicing? Because the sooner they get into that, the sooner they will have an idea that will actually change the world. Yes. Yes, and especially it ties back to the fact that you said that when we are young, we are more open to discoveries. Our brain is more open to receive new ideas, more malleable in a positive way. So absolutely. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the podcast, we like to discover the if questions department. So the first if question I'm going to ask from you is if you were a Tsar of legal legislation, actually I got that from a Harvard course I did and I think it was such a cool idea to play with that concept. Uh, what would you change about our society and why? Um, well, uh, first of all, you have to remember that I'm not an economist. Um, I'm not a lawyer either. But I think that um, for me, and this is from my angle, I think from a legal point of view, there are two things I would change, major things. The first thing would be to, and this is based on my plastic research, is to limit the number of plastics that are allowed to be used. Imagine if we could limit the number of plastics to five plastic types. Now, th that would be enough to cover our uses, our use cases, and like that, and label them. Um, maybe have specific restrictions on what can be added to them. Like that, we'd only have five plastics we need to separate and recycle, as opposed to the like more like 500 that are in existence now. Um, and that would make it easier to reuse plastics on a, long, a longer scale. Um, as part of that, I also think that people should try um, and hopefully build a legislation that every product needs to be built with modularity in mind. That if I buy a phone, the modules inside that phone can be taken apart and reused without having to recycle the material itself. Imagine if instead of buying a new phone each year, we would just simply replace a battery or put in a better camera module instead of having to throw away the whole phone um, because just because we want that better camera. Imagine if we could just replace the camera. I think the other thing I would change is trying to give more voice and power to young inventors and scientists. Because I think that they definitely have the power to change the world, but they need to also have education on the way ideas can be legally protected. And that's where I think the trademark and patent offices really need to play a part in doing a better job at explaining the processes of patent and trademark protections to young people, but also making that whole application procedure cheaper um, and easier and more accessible to young people. I think people hearing your policies right now, if you were to run for a president or for a czar, would definitely vote for you because those are going to be essential. Yay! <laughs> Next stop is setting up a campaign, right? Yeah, yeah. You've highlighted the fact that products need to be durable because it just highlights that we have to think the long about the long-term impacts of our actions. And I guess some of the characterization we hear about Western societies or more developed countries that we tend to 
focus on the now and what feels good at the moment. But what feels good at the moment does not necessarily coincide with what is great for us. So um, it's, a, it's a good concept that we have to think about those aspects when putting together a product as well. Absolutely. And the next question is, if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who would you invite and why? Well, um, I think one definite person I would really love to have dinner with um, is uh, Michael Faraday. So Michael Faraday for me is perhaps the, perhaps the king of inventions, um, but actually not super valued um, as a scientist normally. Like I, I don't think that many people would, would, or particularly lay people would hear of him. Michael Faraday was an electrochemist but also so much more than that. And he started his invention journey with literally a pile of junk um, and a good imagination um, back in um, yeah, the 1850s or so. And then really from there, he became to be a pioneering chemist where he discovered many elements um, and chemicals, but just built his own equipment all the time. But more than that, he was really fascinated about sharing stories so one of those things was, um, for instance, um, the Christmas lectures from the Royal Institution, which are still given to this day. The first ones and the whole idea was founded by him. And in fact, the first one-way street in the whole of London was the one going up to the Christmas lectures um, of his first round because so many people of London wanted to listen to science given by a professor of chemistry. Um, so that's why I would really love to have dinner with him um, and really speak with him about the science that he did. And judging from your Insta, in the best meaning possible, you're also a foodie. You have a designated Instagram profile for sharing some of the meals you eat or even prepare. I don't know. So would you cook for Michael Faraday or would you take him out for a dinner at some type of restaurant? Oh, I, I think cooking together is the, the way to go. Because I think uh, we both like chemistry. And I think for me, um, uh, cooking is just an applied form of chemistry. And therefore, I think it would be so much fun to also speak about the processes going on. Um, I love cooking. I love being in the kitchen. For me, as I said, it's applied chemistry. Um, I really, though, don't eat any seafood products. Um, that's mainly due to microplastics, but also just the, the humane um, aspect. Um, and meat, I uh, really look at very, very organic or well-kept animals um, if I do eat meat, but I eat, eat it rarely. My Instagram, however, just to clarify, is only things I cook, and I cannot post anything that gets cooked for me. Um, it's only things that I have personally cooked. Okay, that's even more impressive in that lighting. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, well then maybe you could open a new sustainable restaurant with greener recipes. Who knows what the future holds for you? Totally. Actually, something I'm, I would like to work on more is looking at perhaps creating a cooking show, um, ideally one where we look at chemistry and how cooking is applied chemistry or something like that, ideally for kids um, to get them into chemistry, but also cooking in a healthy and sustainable manner. Awesome. And in terms of kids, you're also writing a book at the moment. When is it going to be published? What can we know about it? I know that you might not be able to share that much information, but just something. <laughs> well, I'm really working on a storyline and story product uh, surrounding science and a young inventor, just fiction. Um, that's something I've been working on for a while. Um, I can't give too much more away than that. Um, without you know spoiling things um, but I'm working on a book and several kids tv series at the moment all inspired and designed on the whole idea of just trying to share more people and get more people excited about science and innovation but also it's me just experimenting and dabbling in a different field so I can go in at the day to the lab do experiments and then come home and continue writing on a book so it's completely different so it's fun yes it means a good breakaway and the next part is this or that questions. So as the name suggests, you got to choose this or that. The first one is small town or big city? Small town. Small town. Groningen is a small town or yeah, how would you classify yeah. it? 
Yeah, Groningen is a small town, but I like small towns. Okay, I get the Dutch accent. I can feel it. <laughs> Hear it. <laughs> and the next one is playing the guitar or the trumpet? Oh, uh, playing the trumpet. In fact, I can move. You see my trumpet just over here. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I play the trumpet. <laughs> How long have you been playing the trumpet? Um, I would say maybe about 11 years. Wow. So I play in my local uh, student orchestra. That's impressive. And you are still practicing, as you, I can tell, yeah, from the placement in your room. And that's yeah, another fun project to work on and to experiment with. And for me, trumpet, it's just applied physics. Everything, applied chemistry, applied physics. Yeah, but, but physics is just applied chemistry, you see? Ah, okay. I see the inception <laughs> story coming in. And the next one is acting in a Hollywood movie or having your own roadshow. I would love to have my own roadshow. Um, and I think ideally one where we're visiting different things, um, exploring different things. Actually, it could be anything. I think having my own roadshow, hosting a show in general, I'm totally down. Yes, yes, I can tell. And it speaks to your communication aspects and how you love to share ideas. So it definitely coincides. And the next one is having the vision or designing the system first? I think having the vision. And I think that um, what we need is that without a vision, we can't design a system based on it, right? And I think that uh, the vision is the more fun bit, at least for me, because I get to be at that very early stage where my mind can just run free and I can just kind of capture my ideas out of everywhere and kind of jumble them up and mix them around and massage them into something that actually um, hopefully works. Yeah, just mixing the ingredients. You know what you're going to prepare like as a receive. You can envision the end goal, but then you're going to start figuring it out. Okay, how much baking soda do I need for this recipe? Yeah. And the last one is snowball fight or water balloon fight. Well, um, snowball fight is better, in my opinion, because we're not creating microplastics and we're not creating a lot of plastic pollution because uh, water balloons are made of plastic. Um, but also, I love snow and I love being out in snow. And uh, I actually had a wonderful snowball fight with a load of global shapers at Davos, the World Economic Forum. And that really made me fall in, fall in love with snowball fights. How amazing. And I actually haven't thought about the pollution aspect of having a water balloon fight, but it totally makes sense. And the last question is, what does innovation mean to you? Well, to me, um, that's actually a very difficult question. But I mean, for me, innovation is more a mindset than a, an actual physical process. I think in the past, a lot of philosophers have defined innovation as the application of scientific research um, and particularly the application of those into technology and things like that. But I think that is, in my opinion, not true. For me, innovation is the mindset to create change through changing um, through the recon, uh, through, I guess, the reconceptualization of already existing processes or completely new processes, trying to solve a problem, but above all, trying to apply a creative, new, maybe innovative and slightly crazy mindset to a problem that needs to be solved. Yes, it's so good. It should be included in a dictionary, what you've just shared, because sometimes people tend to think that, oh, when I'm about to innovate, I have to create something out of this world new. But it also applies to, you know, putting together the puzzle pieces in a completely new order. That is also innovation. So it's yeah. great that you mentioned. So many people think that to, to enter a science fair, they need like a brand new, innovative, you know, completely unheard of idea. And that's not true. I think that instead you should experiment with ideas that already inspire you and replicate them. Try out the experiment at home and then something new will come of it naturally. You just don't need to force it yourself. Yes, exactly. And it's also great that you've shared a vast array of ideas. Um, I could 
tell that you are enthusiastic about science and you are also open to you know share advice with young people and pass those incredible bits of wisdom to the current next generation or even older ones who are young in spirit and it's great to see that theoretically or practically you are jumping off cliffs in a way and you develop your wings on the way you're not afraid of trying new things out that are beneficial in your journey and even they're not they are still going to add up to the experience so thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your vision and also who you are beyond that project board <laughs> well it's been really really enjoyable to share my vision share what I, who I am, what I love doing, um, my life, and why I'm so crazy and my crazy mindset, hopefully. And uh, ultimately, hopefully, I hope that at least one of you guys listening um, will, will, will realize that you're also crazy at heart and you, know, you also will be an innovator or an inventor. Yeah, the good type of crazy, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you yeah. again. <laughs> Follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.